You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Exodus chapter 8 verse 20 is where we're at today. For those that weren't with us last week, we jumped into the plagues and looked at the first three. Uh, We looked at the Nile River being turned to blood, the frogs and the gnats that were brought upon um, the land, and uh, saw some specific things there about how uh, our God is the ultimate provider, not the Nile River. That was the message that was being sent by God as he turned the Nile River, which was their source of life, into blood. He took it away from them and shows that he's the provider, not the Nile River. We also learned that uh, our God has the ability to act whenever he chooses, making his timetable impeccable. Um, We saw how he was able to turn things off and on at a moment's notice, and he could uh, predict when certain things were going to happen. And then even uh, with the removal of the frogs, Moses allowed Pharaoh to choose the time to see those uh, disappear, or not really disappear, but die. We talked about how they had to clean up the mess after the fact, right? Um, And so we saw that God controls time. And then lastly, we saw how God's finger is on every aspect of our life. Um, how the, the magicians were able to replicate the first two plagues, and then uh, when the gnats are created out of the dust of the ground, they come and have the conversation with Pharaoh and say, we can't do this. Uh, this is beyond our abilities. This is certainly the finger of God that's at work here. And so we saw um, certain aspects about God, and we've been talking about how the plagues uh, give us assurance about the comfort and hope about certain attributes of God that we hold to be true. And we're going to talk more about that uh, today. But let's look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that, they, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. 
And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Our summary sentence for today, we are called to obey God fully without compromise at all times. Not just when we feel like we need a jolt of God's care in the midst of crisis. Because God is always working to protect his people, even at times when we are unaware. We're called to obey God fully without compromise at all times, not just when we feel like we need a jolt of God's care in the midst of crisis, because God is always working to protect his people, even at times when we are unaware. For our kids, God wants us to obey him always, and he promises to always protect us. We're going to continue to see today how some of the greatest comforts that we hold to and cling to about God are reinforced through the ways that he acts in the plagues the ways that he communicates, us, communicates to us who he is and what he does. Um, think about for a minute just the, the perception that the, the, and even the perspective that the Egyptians and even the Hebrews would have had as they're watching all of this unfold around them, right? Like we don't get a whole lot of insight into what they're thinking. At times we have the magicians having conversations with Pharaoh about their thoughts and their impact. Uh, we certainly hear from Pharaoh. We've got Moses and Aaron diving into the conversation we don't, we don't know exactly what the, what the Egyptians were thinking, what the Hebrews were thinking, but I think it's interesting to think about how undoubtedly they would have had questions about why the cosmos around them was failing, right? I mean, think about how our response is very quick to wonder, is the, is the world coming to an end? Like, that's our culture's response when weird things start to happen, Right? When you start to hear about comets flying around the, the earth or uh, you start to hear about volcanoes erupting or even wars and rumors of wars, it starts to create an unsettledness, right? Like you start to see those things and immediately your mind goes into an apocalyptic type thought process of, is this the end, right? Is, are things coming to an end as we know it? So you got to think that even though they don't have the same level of prophecy maybe to refer back to like we do, at this time... You're just an average Egyptian, right? You wake up one morning and you go to get water and, and it's just blood, right? And that's, that's the weirdest thing you've ever seen because that's, that's so unusual and so unlike anything else. And, and then the next day there's frogs everywhere, right? And you don't have social media to jump on and, and like look at everybody, what they're tweeting to figure out, oh, Moses and Pharaoh are talking again, right? And he won't let the people of Israel go. And so Moses said we'd get frogs. And that's the explanation here. Like, I don't know how quickly news uh, traveled, but I mean, you wake up and all of a sudden there's frogs everywhere, right? And then, and then you don't even know maybe why they, why they all die, but you're certainly thankful, but there's dead frogs everywhere. And so that's kind of ominous and, and it's kind of looming over you. Like what's next? And then all of a sudden there's gnats everywhere, right? And like they're super annoying and you can't get rid of them. And, and we don't even really know when they end, right? Like we just roll right into plague number four. We don't know when God removed those, 
But I wonder like what the questioning was, was, was going on in the minds of an Egyptian, right? Like why, why is the world failing around us? What's happening? Is this the end? Undoubtedly, they would have been asking themselves, who really controls the cosmos? In the midst of all the gods they would have worshipped, who's in control here? And I think what God's doing, he's decreating if you look at it. If you go back to Genesis and you read how he creates, right? There's separation of light and darkness, and there's the creation of all these different types of animals, sea animals, land animals, um, flying animals, right? And so um, he's, he's in a sense decreating as though uh, he's going back and using that creation against the Egyptian people. And by doing this, he's showing that every god of Egypt fails to uphold the worthiness of worship. Think about that. Every god that they worship is tied to, and we've said this, it's tied to what they're experiencing. <clears throat> and so as these things are failing around them, man, they have to start questioning, are the gods that we worship worthy of it? Should we really be devoting our time and attention and our affection? Are we, are we really to be sacrificing to these gods if they're not here when we need them? God's saying a lot about himself in the plagues, but he's also saying a lot about these gods of Egypt. He's saying that everything he can do, those other gods can't do. It's important for us to see that because we've talked about how the, the goal of this study through the plagues is for us to evaluate our own hearts and, and the gods that we worship. We, we kind of made it, we tried to make it memorable for you by giving them P uh, letters, but like we're drawn to power, we're drawn to pleasure, and we are, we're drawn to profit, right? Like we're drawn to the abuse of those things. The world tempts us with those things. It tempts us to go after power and control that's not meant for us. It's tempting us to go after pleasures that are outside God's bound of pleasure. It's tempting us to abuse and, and to distort uh, the use of money for our own personal gain. Those are the gods that we're tempted to go after. And, and God's showing us through the plagues that um, he's the only one that can provide for us. He's the only one that can satisfy us. He's the only one worthy of following. And so we're going to continue to see that as we jump into these three plagues today. Number one in your notes, we rejoice over our unknown experiences from God. Rejoice over your unknown experiences from God. What do I mean by unknown? Well, I want you to see two sides of this. There's the unknown experiences of God, meaning the things that we know we could experience from God that he protects us now from, right? So we're going to talk in terms of uh, the future coming of God's wrath, right? We can, we can rejoice over the fact that as believers, we're never going to experience that. We're never going to experience God's wrath. First Thessalonians 1 tells us that Jesus spares us from the wrath to come. How? He died on the cross. He absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. Like that wrath has been satisfied. There is no more stored up wrath for us. But there's also the piece where God protects us from experiences that we could have had and yet we never do. And that's what we start to see here with the plagues. Up to this point, the, we, we, we assume that the Hebrews have had to experience the plagues right alongside the Egyptians because here with the flies, God's, God makes a distinction, right? He communicates to Pharaoh, I'm going to show you something different about me here. I'm going to show you my commitment to my people because as this plague comes, it will not touch my people. So, so it, it alludes to the fact that up to this point, the the Hebrews have had to find drinking water because all of their water was blood too. They've been annoyed with the frogs. They've been annoyed with the gnats. But I told you that the plagues start to 
increase in severity, that it goes from being an annoyance to now being painful and personal loss being attached to it, right? Uh, We're going to see in a minute that the flies were probably uh, a biting type bug that would have been harmful and painful to the people. God's people don't endure that, right? Um, The livestock, personal loss, none of the Israelites' livestock is taken. We assume moving forward as well, um, even though it's not directly mentioned, that they're spared from the boils too. So they endure the annoyance piece, but God protects them moving forward here. Um, and it becomes an unknown experience, meaning they don't, they don't know it because they don't experience it, right? They don't, they don't have to endure it. And we ought to rejoice today over those unknown experiences that we get as well. There are certainly things that we know we could experience from God, and he spares us from those things, particularly that coming wrath. But man, I don't know how often you contemplate this, but think about the things that God spares you from that you never even know about. Right? We talk a lot about how God uses our, our hard circumstances for good in our life. But I fully believe that God protects us from certain circumstances that would not be good in our life as well. He spares us from that. He spare, I, I've shared this with you before. Like Those of you that, that got saved early in life, right? Like you, you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home and uh, you got exposed to the gospel early. You may not have that uh, that crazy testimony where you uh, were, were engulfed in, in gross sin and God had to reach in and save you from years of being an agnostic or an atheist and, and you gave yourself to the things of this world and then he came and rescued you and pulled you up. Some of you don't have that testimony, right? But the glory of God in the gospel is that you were saved from a need for that type of testimony, right? You were saved from experiences that are unknown to you because God never allowed you to travel that path. He saved you from it, not out of it, right? And we can rejoice over that. And God communicates this and allows us to see how he functions towards his people by telling Pharaoh, hey, this plague is coming and it is not going to impact my people. God produces swarms of flies to attack Egypt's gods depicted as bugs, now, it would seem weird to us maybe, but they, they had a whole host of gods that were depicted in bug format. Um, so it's unclear to us exactly what type of fly is being talked about here, and it's really unclear to us as to what type of god is being judged. It could be um, what's known as the Ikunuman fly. Uh, it was a fly that was a biting type bug, and it would also deposit eggs on the host for the larva to hatch and eat from, to, to, to grow and develop, which would have been a, a nasty thing to have to deal with. There's some commentators believe that this is actually a word being used for the scarab, which is a type of flying beetle that's known to the Egyptian area. Uh, and they had gods depicted with that, e- that, e- that Egyptian beetle-type head that they would worship. And so we're not exactly sure what... God is being represented here or being attacked, um, as there were numerous gods that were depicted in bug format. Um, We also know that they worshipped Beelzebub, uh, which was considered to be the Lord of the Flies. We know later uh, in in Scripture that name is even attached to uh, satanic forces, right? Even Satan himself. And what we're seeing here is that Yahweh shows himself to be the true Lord of the Flies here, that the the Lord of the Flies that they would have worshipped can't control the flies, right? God brings the flies on the scene and judges Egypt with this piece of creation. And they're devastating. Psalm 78, 45 tells us, 
the flies were devouring the Egyptians. So there's some type of biting element that's going on here. Now, we see God's miraculous power in the bringing of the flies, but it's also his unique protection towards the Hebrews in Goshen that shows his miraculous power too, right? He tells us uh, and tells Pharaoh specifically that in bringing this, he is going to create division. He says in verse 23 of chapter 8, I will put a division between my people and your people. In 22, I'll set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. There's division and separation that's the intent behind this plague. The the communicating something about himself through it is that he cares for his people. I mean, think about the miracle here. He controls the flight patterns of these flies. They're buzzing around, flying around. They're, They're consuming the land but there's almost a force field that, that starts at Goshen. And they don't, they don't penetrate it. They don't go through. And they're circulating the Egyptians and they're wreaking havoc on the land. They're devouring the people. And, and nobody in, in Goshen is touched by it. It's God's, God's hedge of protection that's placed there. We also see God's miraculous power in not only bringing the flies on the scene, but in their removal, Right? The verse is intentional in verse 31 to tell us that he removed the flies and not one remained. Not even one was left when he removed them from the scene. And it comes about as an answer to prayer, right? We'll talk in a minute here about Pharaoh and Moses and the negotiations, but Pharaoh summons Moses and says, we got to get rid of these. Moses says, okay, I'll go and pray. And he prays and God responds to that prayer and removes every single one of the flies as he promised to do. What lesson do we learn from this? Well, we learn that God spares his children from the hard circumstances that would be neither good or appropriate. God spares his children from the hard circumstances that would be neither good or appropriate. This is the first time we see this discrimination piece of the plagues, that only certain individuals are getting it. It's the Egyptians, not the Hebrews. But up to this point, we said that they were subjected to the plagues, right? Their, their water was bloody. They were stuck with the frogs. They were stuck with the gnats. It reminds us that as believers, we get both as well sometimes too, right? Living in a world under God's judgment means that we suffer alongside those who are rejecting him a lot of the times. We're not exempt from the, the, um, the, the effects of sin, the impact of sin, right? It's why... It's why um, Christian parents sometimes have to endure the loss of their children. It's why Christians lose grandparents to death, right? It's why Christians lose jobs. It's why Christian marriages fail sometimes, right? We're not, we're not completely removed from the impact of sin because we're right in the midst of this world being judged just like the Hebrews were. But what we can remember is in the midst of this, we have God's protection around us in unique ways, that God does choose to spare his children from many of the evils of this world. Sometimes we're aware of it, sometimes we're not. Now think of it this way. When we, when we talk about the Bible, what does the Bible contain? Well, it contains narrative stories, but then it also contains uh, just definitive truths, right? So you go to certain sections of Scripture and you're going to read narrative stories. That's what we're doing here through the book of Exodus. <laughs> We're coming out of the book of uh, Ephesians and the book of Psalms where we saw more definitive truths. These are things that are true about God, true about Christians, true about following Jesus. 
they work together to reinforce our faith, right? How do they do that? Well, the Bible gives us truths to believe, and then it validates our belief in those truths with stories depicting the truths in action. Let me say that again. The Bible gives us truths to believe, and then it validates our belief in those truths with stories depicting the truths in action. So stories like Goshen being spared from this plague gives life to verses about God's love, His care, and His protection for His people. You understand that? We have truths about, God's, about God in His Word, verses that we memorize, verses that we cling to. Right? We say God loves His people. God spares His people. God protects His people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 uh, is a great verse that gives us truth about God. 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's a truth that we hang on to. And then stories like what's happening here reinforce that we should believe that truth. That God does really take care of his people. That God spares his people. That God protects his people. Right? So we read verses like Romans 8, 28. That all things work together for good. That's a truth that we believe. But how do we know that's true? Beyond the Bible saying it, do we have any proof, any, any story that we can go to to say, this is why I believe it, because I've seen God in action, right? Well, go to the story of Joseph, right? Joseph sold into slavery, and, and everything looks like it's going against him. And then lo and behold, God is using all of that circumstances to put him in charge of Egypt so that the children of Israel can be spared from the famine. And what does Joseph say to his brothers at the end when they're begging for his forgiveness? Hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So we have the truth of Romans 8, 28. Hang on to this. God works good for his children. How do we know that? Well, God worked good for his children back in the Old Testament when he saved Joseph out of being sold into slavery to be used as the deliverer for his people. That's what's happening here as we read this story about Goshen being spared. Man, let that give life to the verses that you hang on to about God's protection and God's love for his people. We can rejoice over these uh, unknown experiences where God protects us. And you may not know how God is protecting you from the flies in your life right now. But I guarantee you there are things that are not happening to you right now that could be if he didn't have his hedge of protection around you. There's things that aren't happening to you right now that could be happening to you, but God has spared you from that. And you may not ever know about it, but what do we do? We're prone to complain about the circumstances we are going through. We don't ever think about the ones that we're not even having to go through because of his love and care for us. We're so prone to focus on the ones that we are going through. But let me give you this. We rejoice over the experiences we know we could experience, but don't. We rejoice over the unknown experiences that are withheld from us. Here's the two great truths that we hang on to. Two great truths that we can rejoice over. One we've already mentioned, Romans 8, 28, that everything we experience will be good. So think about some of the, the undesirable circumstances that maybe you're going through right now, the hard circumstances that you're having to deal with. Right? Some of you come home at night to an empty house. It's just you. And at times in your life, there's been somebody else there and there's not somebody there right now. And it's hard and it's difficult and it's lonely at times. Some of you come home from a job that's unsatisfying, unfulfilling, and it's difficult and there's tension and pressure there that's, that's putting pressure on your family. 
Right? Some of you have wayward children right now. They're not, they're not living the way that, that you or God would desire for them to live, and there's broken fellowship there. Some of you have tension within your marriage maybe right now. There, all of us have different circumstances. Some of you have had medical diagnosis within your family that's causing you anxiety and concern. Like, how does this carry out? How does it, these are all circumstances that God has chosen for us to go through. These are our bloody Nile River experiences. These are our frogs, and these are our gnats. These are the ones where Israel went through them with the Egyptians. But there's ones that we're not going through that God protects us from. And Romans 8, 28 tells us the ones that he does choose to take us through, those are ones that he's going to use for good. So the ones that we are going through, the ones that we say, man, I wish that, I wish that these things would be removed from my life. Man, we hang on to the truth that these are the ones that God's going to use for good. The, the biting flies and the, the dead livestock and the boils, those are the ones I'm not even having to go through, praise God. And the ones I am having to go through, Romans 8, 28 tells me this is going to be used for good in my life, and so I can rejoice over it. The second great truth that we possess, not just Romans 8, 28, that everything works for good, the second great truth that we possess is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, which we're studying in our small group and D groups right now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. For our ladies, whoever has this section, here's some free information for you to, to rehash when you meet this week. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We are not destined for wrath. And we don't think about that enough. We don't rejoice over that enough. There is a reality that many still live under, that wrath is coming upon them one day for their sin. Their, their hearts are hardened to God, and they will be subjected to his wrath one day, and you never will. Like, the worst possible circumstance you may feel like you're in the middle of right now. I can tell you it pales in comparison to the greatest, worst experience of all time. And if you're a believer, you've already been spared from it. You will never know that experience. 1 Thessalonians 1, Jesus spares us from this wrath to come. So don't lose sight of these two great truths. Whatever plague you're going through right now, you can trust this is one that's supposed to be used for good in my life. He doesn't spare me from all the plagues. He does spare me from the ones that are inappropriate for me. They're inappropriate because I'm one of, I'm one of God's children. And I think there is a correlation that the ones that start to bring harm to the Egyptians, not just annoyance, not just difficulty, but actual physical harm, those are the ones the Hebrews don't go through. It's not appropriate because they are his children, right? And God, God spares them from those. The ones that, that are challenging and difficult and will increase faith and increase perseverance, those are the ones that he does bring his people through, right? They don't just poof, peer, appear in the promised land. They have to go through the wilderness to get there. There are challenges and difficulties that he brings us through. He promises they're always for our good, though. So whatever your circumstance, whatever your plague is right now, you trust that God's bringing you through it for good purposes. And then you remind yourself, as bad as I may feel in this circumstance right now, it does not even compare to what I've already been spared from. There are things in this life I will never experience because I follow him and he protects me from it. There are things in the life to come I will never experience because Christ experienced it for me. We rejoice over those unknown experiences from God. Number two, we resist negotiating our obedience to God. 
resist negotiating your obedience to God. We're going to look at the, pl- the second plague first and then go back to that conversation that happens before the dead livestock where Pharaoh negotiates letting the people go on his terms. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, The God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the, land, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. This is the fifth plague, the one that God brings upon them that really begins to amp up the severity. God produces a livestock disease to attack Egypt's gods depicted as cows. Again, we don't know exactly which gods being attacked here. Maybe it's all of them that are depicted in the form of a cow because there were many. Several gods and several goddesses that were represented by sacred cows and bulls. There was Apis and Hathor and Isis. I mean, it makes sense when we think about who Israel is tempted to worship when they leave in the wilderness, right at the base of the mountain where the Ten Commandments are being given, right? What do they construct? A golden calf. Because that's what they're used to. That's what the norm is for them, worshiping this type of God. So this is an attack on that God, which, man, it it stinks to think that the Israelites see this attack on the livestock, that the, the cow God can't save the Egyptian cows, and yet they are prone to go right back to trying to worship it themselves not long after this, but that's certainly what happens. But God shows that he's greater than these gods by attacking the livestock. And again, he spares the Israelites from this plague. There's a distinction or discrimination. Once again, it's only the Egyptians that get this. And it's so miraculous to Pharaoh that it says that in verse 7, Pharaoh even sent people to behold and to verify that actually all the Israelite livestock was still walking around. Like he he was impressed by this. Doesn't change his heart, but he was prompted and curious as to, man, is this really happening? Is this plague only isolated towards us? And we know it to be true that it was. It's a reminder to us not to miss the clear evidence of God working in our life and not believing it, right? Don't miss it. Don't miss God working in your life. There's clear evidence. It's so, to- so oftentimes easy to miss that. Don't miss it like Pharaoh did. Egypt's livestock dies. Israel's does not. Now, it's interesting because unless you've read ahead, you don't realize that there's still livestock around when these other plagues show up. How's that the case? Like, if all of them die, how can they still be around to be, like, because they're told to protect them from the hail that's going to come, right? Bring your livestock in. Don't let them get hit with the hail. Well, I thought they all died. Well, maybe there's a couple explanations that help us to see this not as a contradiction. Um, It's likely that only those in the field at the time are impacted because the text distinguishes it that way. It says, If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. Which livestock? The ones that are in the field. They would have had others that were put up at the time. Those were there were in stalls and in barns potentially. And so at the end of this plague, virtually all of them are dead. When you compare to what's left, they're pretty much all dead. But it seems to be tied to those that are in the field, which to me doesn't take away from the miracle, right? You could say, well, well, that's not much of a miraculous God if he only killed some of their livestock. That's kind of interesting to think about. He only killed them in the field, right? Like the ones who were in the barns were protected from a potentially airborne type disease, right? Like all these other cows are just like dropping dead in the field. 
Imagine me and the farmer kind of walking out and you see like, I got a cow dead right here and this cow right here under this barn isn't dead. To me, that's a greater miracle that he communicates, hey, the ones in the field are going to die. The ones that are put up aren't. But for the most part, their livestock is devastated here. And it's an attack on their financial security. His lordship over time is highlighted once again because God is determining when this happens and how it happens and when it will be carried out and when it will stop. Think again about how there's dead creatures everywhere. Now it's not frogs, it's, it's cows and camels and donkeys and horses and they're having to clean this mess up. There's a stench that becomes exhausting to them. What's the lesson we learn here? That God is not interested in obedience that's coupled with compromise or generated by crisis. This plague comes as a result of the conversation that we're going to look at quickly now. God's not interested in an obedience that's uh, mingled with compromise or generated by crisis. And that's what happens when Pharaoh reaches back out to Moses and Aaron in the midst of the flies. Right? He summons them and says, hey, I'm going to let you go sacrifice. Just do it here within Egypt. Like, Just sacrifice to your God here in Egypt. Do your worship, but do it here in Egypt. Moses is like, that's not going to work. And so then Pharaoh comes back and says, well, do your worship, but do it close enough so that you come back to Egypt. Why does, he, why does Moses respond by saying that their worship would be offensive to the Egyptians? Remember I told you last week, I don't think that Pharaoh is all that concerned about them worshiping Yahweh, right? Because he's not trying to push his religion on them. He's upset because they're trying to push theirs on him, right? Like our God is telling you what to do. Pharaoh's like, you do what your God says, I'm going to do what our gods say, right? And so he tells them like, hey, just worship your God here in Egypt. No big deal. That's fine. Well, Moses says, no, you're, you're going to stone us if we do it. Why? Because we're going to kill cows and we're going to kill sheep for our sacrifices. And these were things the Egyptians did not do, right? Remember, shepherds are offensive to the Egyptians. When Joseph brings his family in, the Bible tells us in Genesis 43, that they didn't eat with them because they were shepherds. Then when they moved down to Egypt, Joseph says, tell them you're shepherds because then they'll put you in Goshen. They'll keep us separated from the Egyptian culture because they hate shepherds, right? So Moses is like, hey, this isn't going to work because our God's going to tell us to sacrifice cows and sheep and, and you're going to be offended by that because these animals are either gross and disgusting or sacred to you and that's going to cause some tension. So he says, that's not going to work. Pharaoh says, okay, fine. You can go worship in the wilderness. Just don't go too far away. And then he appeals to Moses and says, just get me out of this, right? Like, I'm going to consent and obey God. Just take this crisis away. I think there's some points for us to, to, to think about application-wise for ourselves here. Number one, we can't attempt to worship and obey God in a way that fails to create clear, decisive separation from the world. Let me say that again. We can't attempt to worship and obey God in a way that fails to create clear, decisive separation from the world. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 talks about how there can't be a mingling of darkness and light together. I don't know if any of you are in this type of spot. For our youth, you know, once again, I would challenge you to hear me on this because you are maybe more so than even your mom and dad put in situations regularly where you're having to choose, do I follow Christ or do I follow the things of this world? Because I got a lot of people in my life that are following the things of this world in my school setting. Moses says, hey, we, we, we can't worship our God while being in the midst of your world. Right? We, have to, we have to be distinct and separate and different. We got to come out of this to worship and follow our God the right way. 
think that's true of us too. We can't, we can't be so intermixed in the things of this world and think that we can worship God faithfully because they don't mix together, right? We also can't attempt to worship and obey God in a way that keeps us close enough to the world so that we can try to serve both. It was never going to work for them to only go a little bit of a ways away from Egypt so that Egypt could keep tabs on them, right? The idea was go worship your God and be close enough to come back and, and, and serve us as soon as you're done, and for our youth, man, hear me on this too. Like, it, like it's not, God's not satisfied with you coming to church with your parents, coming to deep dive or coming to boys small group or girls discipleship group and, and then going right back into the things of this world and living opposite of what you're challenged to do here. Like that's not obedience either. Obedience to God is not obedience on Sundays and Wednesdays and when you're with your church people. And then when you're not with your church people, you can do the things that the other people are doing. God's not interested in that kind of compromising obedience. Don't obey God partially so that it doesn't disturb the rest of your commitments in life. Had they done this, nobody would have ever known that they were really worshiping Yahweh because it wouldn't have looked a whole lot different than the way the Egyptians were worshiping. I challenge you, like, adults and youth, like, the settings that you find yourself in outside of Sundays, do people really know that you're a believer? Do people really identify you as a Christ follower? Or are they even confused by it? Would they even say, I don't really know. Sometimes it seems like it. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it, though. When it comes to obeying God, there can be no compromise, no excuses, no alterations, no adjustments. God doesn't negotiate. Doesn't negotiate. Lauren and I watched uh, Air Force One recently. It was, it's, a, it's a really good movie. It was on TV, so it cut out a lot of the cussing if there is cussing in it. And, um, you know, it's got uh, Harrison Ford in it. He's the president. He's on a plane. Terrorists attack it. And one of the big points of the movie is we're not going to negotiate with terrorists right? Like we're not going to compromise here because the moment we do, it's just going to increase more terroristic attacks because they know they can get whatever they want. So there's this whole tension of, are we going to compromise, not compromise? Are we going to negotiate, not negotiate? God doesn't negotiate with us on obedience. He doesn't tell us to do things and then give us the option to counter it and say, I'm willing to do this, or I'm willing to do it this way. Now he tells him to let my people go and they're going to go and worship me and serve me. And that's the call that he's given to us to, to obey him fully without compromise. Can't be guilty of only obeying God when we need a jolt of God's goodness and care only to revert to old ways when crisis passes. That's what Pharaoh was obeying with, right? This crisis happens and he's like panicking and saying, okay, God, I'm going to do whatever you want to do. And then as soon as the crisis passes, he goes back to his old hardening ways, right? Some of us are guilty of this too. We're tempted to obey God when we're going through something really difficult. We want to call upon good God's goodness and care. And then when the crisis passes, we kind of go back to our casual approach to Christianity. That's a compromised obedience as well. We want to resist negotiating with God about our obedience. And then lastly, number three, we want to remember other gods bow to our God. Other gods bow to our God. God produces a widespread attack of boils. And this attacks God's, or the Egyptian, the Egypt's gods of healing. So the flies come, Pharaoh negotiates, they're released. God reacts to Pharaoh's hardening by bringing the livestock death. Pharaoh's heart, stay, Pharaoh's heart stays hardened. The sixth plague is the boils. Moses comes in and God instructs him to take soot from the kiln and to throw it up in the air. And it's going to turn into some type of um, covering that produces boils on the, on the skins of the, the Egyptian people and the animals. It's an attack on the healing gods and they can offer no solutions here to the Egyptians. 
Once again, God uses an existing substance and changes it into something different. Just like he took the dust and turned it into gnats. He takes this soot and turns it into boils upon the people. I think there's likely a, 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 a picture of justice here because more than likely the soot comes from the brick ovens where the, where the Hebrews are having to make these bricks to build for the Egyptians. Moses pulls the soot from that type of oven throws it back on the Egyptians and brings the boils upon them. The lesson that we learn here is that when most needed, our God is the only reliable option as all other gods will find themselves unavailable eventually. Notice what it says about the magicians here. I think this is the key point. The boils come and verse 11 says, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The boils are so impactful on the magicians, they're unable to appear before Pharaoh. They can't offer any assistance during this time. Now, remember, this isn't a small feat because these guys were pretty famous. Remember in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, these magicians are mentioned by name. I mean, thousands of years later, they're still known. Their defeat is still known. They can't come and do do anything to help the situation. It's a reminder to us that we have no guarantee that the other so-called gods in our life Remember the power, the pleasure, the profit, right? The, the positions that we hold at our jobs, the money that we make, the, the relationships that we enjoy, none of that remains available to us at all times. Those gods will fail us eventually if that's the source of worship for us. These magicians, they can't even get out of their beds to come help Pharaoh here. The gods of Egypt fail. The application for us from all of this today it's for me to just, I just want to challenge you about where your heart condition is. Are you softening or hardening your heart to the call to trust your experiences in the hands of God and to obey God fully, even when tempted by worldly allures? Are you softening or hardening your heart in these two areas? Do you find yourself more prone to see your challenging experiences and be able to turn those to God and trust Him that He is going to work good, that He's protecting you from things that would be even worse than this, And the things that you're going through, while they may feel like a plague, you are trusting him to work good in that because he's promised it. Are you hardening to those experiences to where you're questioning and doubting God's love? Are you obeying him fully, even when you're tempted by the other gods of this world? Last thing I I put in my notes here, each decision made in this area takes us closer to a habit which creates a way of life that becomes more and more difficult to change. Let me say that again. Each decision made in this area to either soften our hearts or harden our hearts, each decision made in this area takes us closer to a habit, meaning what's our normal response to these type of things? Do we soften or harden to these calls to trust and obey? Creates a way of life that becomes more and more difficult to change. Every time something happens here, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart which puts himself further and further away from being where he needs to be with this God of Israel. He keeps going the wrong direction. It's a habit now. It's a way of life now. We need to guard our hearts so that we don't harden. We keep them soft, soft to the things of God's word, trusting him and obeying him. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you for the truths that we see in Scripture, and particularly how we're seeing the truths depicted in narrative form here. Lord, we believe that you protect your people. 
we're thankful for stories like the, the protection of the Hebrews in Goshen that reassures us, you do protect your people. Lord, as we step out of these doors today and go our separate ways until we meet again, Lord, we're trusting that you will protect us as your people. Doesn't mean that we won't experience plagues this week. There's going to be things that we are challenged with and things that we are tasked to walk through. But Lord, help us to remember that you're protecting us from far greater things that we will never experience because you're our God, because we're your children. Help us to be thankful and to rejoice over the things that we don't have to go through. Help us to remember whatever it is we are going through, we can trust that you are going to work good in the midst of it. Lord, help us to always be thankful that we've been spared from your coming wrath. Lord, we know how this story ends. We know the death angel comes. We know the firstborn is taken. Lord, we're thankful that you sent your firstborn. You took his blood. You spread it on the doorpost. You poured out your wrath on another so that we could be spared. We praise you and thank you for that. Lord, help our response to be full obedience to you. Lord, help us to pull ourselves out of Egypt, to make a decisive break that says, I am following Christ and I am doing it to the fullest. I'm not going to mix and mingle with the things of this world. I'm not going to try to do both. I'm not going to be the type who only follows when I'm in crisis. Lord, help us to be fully devoted to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.